Would you stand for the reading of the word? Would you put that text up there? You know what? Let's start with a different text. How about that? (laughs) Plot twist. Matthew 20. Matthew 20, verse 26. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The phrase I want you to kind of hold in your head for a minute and we'll come back to is the phrase, I'm not doing that. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the QR code in Ukraine. Maybe a little bit. I'm not doing that. Can you think of the last time you said, I'm not doing that? Corey, are you alone right now? There's no children here? I have learned, and I, anybody, anybody had a dad, I know this is Chapman. Anybody who had a dad who was a pastor? Anybody? Yeah. Did you, did you, um, did your dad or your mom always tell stories about you? And you have like internalized sort of low grade, this word gets overplayed, trauma, but you know, you get, you get like low grade, like, oh my gosh. Yeah, so I'm trying to do a better job of that, but I'm going to fail today. So we were driving back, we were, we had an opportunity to go on vacation. Uh, my wife's family has this like standing vacation every year. It's an unbelievable blessing. Uh, and so we went down uh, to Mexico for a week. And uh, on our way back, there's a, uh, a main strip of highway that brings you back to the airport. We were about 50 minutes or so south if it was like the middle of the night and there was no traffic. Uh, and at average time, that 50 minutes is about maybe more like an hour. You might as well prepare that it could be an hour and a half to two because it's just a lot of traffic and it's not a wide road. Well, we've, as we're driving, we find out that um, we hear that from my uh, youngest sister-in-law who had left early because she was flying to California on a different flight. She had flown out or driven out three hours early and taken the cab, and that uh, she was still on the road. She should have arrived hours ago. We're like, oh, my gosh, no. How are you still on the road? So I pull up my phone, look at Google Maps, and I'm watching the arrival time just tick up and up and up and up and up, and it's going to be like three hours. In other words, we're going to miss our flight. And we, at first we were like, well, maybe it'll break. What's going on? Uh, our, I'm doing my best with my broken Spanish and the driver's broken English. And we're trying our best to like, ask, like, what's going on? And he gets a text from one of his friends who's driving one of the vans that's further up. And he shows us a video of these trucks that are parked and blocking a lane of traffic for probably about, like, I don't know, a sixth of a mile or something like that. Just blocking a whole lane. So these thin two lanes have to now go into one in one of the busiest season, busiest moments uh, of the day right near where the airport is. And I go, what is going on? I just figured there's a construction project. Something wasn't being managed well. And he's like, no, 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 there's actually a protest going on. These drivers don't feel like they're safe. They don't feel like the government's doing enough for them. There's all sorts of like dynamic reasons as to why this is going on. It actually seemed like a really good protest. Genuinely. I was like reading about it. I'm like, this is awesome. I stand with these workers Just not today. Um, So we missed our flight. Um, And, uh, you know, small. All the while we're, like, complaining. And, like, you know, Tim and Brittany are flying back from Ukraine. I'm like, all right, we can't be that annoyed by this. You know, those (laughs) those moments where, like, trying to temper this. But this is still actually deeply aggravating. We've got to book a hotel with, like, really bad internet as we're, like, going. All right, we're going to have to stay somewhere near the airport and figure out how to arrange this. And. Everyone's like, oh, you can stay an extra day in Mexico and Texas. I'm like, no, don't trust me. This is like the worst case scenario. So all the while, my oldest daughter had been puking. Um, She was not doing well. She puked in the car. We had a flawless, though, grab of the puke. You want me to explain it to you? No. Um, uh, So she's feeling really sick. And then she just looks at me and is like, I got to go to the bathroom so bad. Oh, my gosh. Okay. I guess it doesn't matter now. We're probably, this is before we had decided we're definitely going to miss our flight. So we pull over. We realize a lot of other people are pulling over. And then everyone's like, got to go to the bathroom. And the family, the Bonham family, my wife's family is all girls, you know, except for dad. So we are like, all right. There's a lot of 
pop squatting and like holding up of shirts to block people as they're trying to, there's not much woods to go into and it's just everything, this is, none of this is good. And I'm like, the reason we pulled over that I understood was my oldest daughter w- like needed to go to the bathroom and she's looking at everybody trying to pee in the woods and Rowan, my youngest, my wife is trying to hold her and she's getting pee all over her. Um, <laughs> so many versions of this story I could tell. Anyway, my, I'm, I sit there and I'm just getting like furious at my oldest who is like, just will not go. She's like, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. She starts to cry. I'm getting more aggravated. This is like high stress, high like situation. And she's just like, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I am not doing that. I am not doing that. And she's crying. I'm crying. You have to do it. I'm not doing it. I'm like, this is the reason. Like, this is going to hurt you. You're going to end up having to like, you know, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm like to the point of like, I won't even share some of my not like strongest parenting moments, like threatening her with you have to put a diaper on, like, you know, which is was accurate. That phrase just kind of hung in the air for me as I got back in the car. And I'm like, you are so stubborn. And and your resolve to not do that thing that was good for you and the reason we pulled over for everybody else, man, it was it was quite a moment. I am not doing that. Those moments in our life, we can probably name pretty quickly of the thing that we should have done, needed to do, was obliged to us, had a deep conviction in our heart that that needed to happen. (laughs) I'm laughing at this as my story to illustrate this point. But man... Where you're like stubborn with God. You're stubborn with your own conscience. It feels like the, pain, the immediate pain of the moment of her being like, this is just too out of left field. I am not on the side of the road in a country that I, I feel like disconnected from with all of my aunties doing that. No, I'm looking at them like, gosh, I'm not doing what you're doing. I'm not, do- I'm not doing that. What are the things when it comes to to actually stepping in to the invitation from Jesus to follow his footsteps in that text that we just read, to be a person who serves, who follows Jesus to the cross and laying down their life for others. Where have there been those moments where you have been met in your own heart with the stubborn resistance of somebody else will do that? I'm not doing that. What keeps us from serving? I'm going to circle back to this passage that we just read at the very end, but I do want to pivot to the passage that first came on the screen here. This is where Jesus is warning the Pharisees, who are the religious leaders, about the ways that they got their priorities all messed up. Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Kind, gentle, nice Jesus is not present in this moment. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Will you say that back to me? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Now, we do not have time this morning to get into all of the context here. It is fascinating. But basically, what's happening is the Pharisees want to, this is a good initial impulse, they want to be holy Every detail of your life matters and you want it to be submitted to God. And so they're supposed to tithe, to give of their resources. And they're like, if we are faithful givers and givers of that 10%, God will be like pleased with us. That's the way we're called to live. And so they kind of created these laws. Like we want to make sure even in the minutia of our life, so even in the way we collect spices, that we weigh them and we know exactly the tenth of the amount of spice that we're supposed to tithe back to the temple. But what they had done clearly is made a mountain out of molehill. What was a small thing, not something that was actually in the law at all, but the Pharisees had gone like, no, this will be good because we care about every little bit of like how we're thinking about our generosity. Every detail, every nickel, is it going to where it needs to go? It's like you walking into church and like neglecting the hurting homeless person on the street and you walk in and you're like, yeah, but I got my 10% of my mint. 10% cumin I got today. This, this was just the quick the, the background, and I share this simply because Jesus, in this section, is calling out the way the religious leaders have missed it. What I love about the way of Jesus, and this shows up in history, it is naturally self-correcting. It is in, implicitly prophetic. 
It continues to where you see unfaithfulness and hypocrisy. We simply go back to the like most fundamental, literal words of Jesus and our tradition, and you find self-critique and a prophetic impulse to re-correct. Jesus is letting them know that what I have in mind of what it really means to walk faithfully with Jesus is not to keep these little laws and heap these things on people as if that is the most important thing when they are neglecting the most obvious things. Spiritual maturity, it's been said, could be defined as the ability to think and act in order of importance in any given situation. Spiritual maturity, the ability to think and act in order of importance in any given situation. Like all the options, what's the most important thing and what's the most appropriate way to respond to it? You've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now, now we love to sort of get like stuck into the Pharisees, but you, you remember like when we were talking about this uh, at the very beginning, they had this vision of faithfulness in the smallest areas of being known and connected to the God of the universe, but we're not allowing that to actually transform their actions. So, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Jesus says this is the most important thing. The first, justice. Justice needs to be done. God's heart, since the fall of humanity, I just want to give you a quick biblical overview of these things, is that the world would be made right. Individually, in families, in communities, in culture itself, the whole world healed. I've said this a million times. Brian Loritz talks about how you can't really understand the Bible at all if you cannot palm Genesis 12. Like if you, if you don't have like a good understanding of what's happening, that the, the beginning of the story really kickstarts with these people. If you're to understand the nature of the church connected to ancient Israel is blessed to be a blessing. You're blessed to be a blessing. You are blessed to bless the whole world. And that idea of blessing is that holistic healing. Jesus shows up bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, the dome where God is king, where everything is in its right place, where things are as they are supposed to, to be. We see in Jesus' manifesto in Luke 4, God's vision for justice and for the world. He lays out the order of priority and importance in the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about it using Isaiah 58, the importance of focusing on justice, not just religious practices. And then there is the great prophetic tradition throughout the scriptures that gets quoted often in the New Testament, lest you think this is just an Old Testament thing. Amos 5. And imagine... Hearing this, imagine like getting up, you ever been to like a Christian conference? Getting up in front of thousands of people, and I love a good conference and a good event, this isn't just the knock of them all, but imagine getting up and everyone's like worshiping and there's like the next band's about to get up and, and all of a sudden like after one of the band goes up, this, this like, I don't know, I like to imagine it, like this really small fiery individual gets up, walks out, and then just announces, like grabs the mic and says this, I hate your religious festivals. I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring me choice fellowship offerings, I will, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music, uh, but let justice roll on like a river of righteousness and like a never-failing stream. One of the challenges I think that a lot of people feel, particularly in our tradition, is that it feels like the, the word justice, especially in this moment right now, just can be messy. It's a space traditionally occupied by people with different theological emphases, and so we can end up fighting more about what justice is than being committed to doing justice itself. And so our theological disputes or our sociological disputes end up weighing more than the people experiencing injustice. You hear me? Hoping that somebody, will, that somebody else will care and take care of it. Let me illustrate it this way. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote in a letter from, Bur uh, from Birmingham jail about his frustration with, at the time, it was white moderates. And he says this. I must confess that over the past few years I've been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. 
I've almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen counselors or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers negative peace, which is the absence of tension, you could say a peacekeeper, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. Ill will, lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. You can imagine trying to answer the question like where you're debating about civil disobedience and he's just feeling like you're, it's not as important as the people who are actually experiencing the injustice in the moment. You're trying to get it just right in your head. Anyone feel this tension? Anyone? It's like don't let your theological concern outweigh the need of the people. First John 3.16 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives uh, through our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but actions and in truth. That's great that you talk about it. It's great that you cognitively ascend to some particular ideas. Show me where it's showing up. And we've talked about this till we are blue in the face. I apologize for continuing to bring up this cheeky phrase. But man, it is just the, the season of virtue signaling. I know people who get everything just right and will not be policed by those that are trying to police certain actions. And I swear, I don't know where on earth in their life, and I don't mean to be judgmental, but they are actually stepping in to serving and helping people who are under the foot of oppression. That may be you. That's okay. Jesus has a lot of mercy. That's number two. Jesus says you've got to align the priorities of your faith in such a way that your personal piety does not cancel out the practice of justice. But the second thing he talks about is the importance of mercy. And I just want to point to a few encounters with the Pharisees to show you his explicit emphasis on mercy. And I'm deeply, I want to just reference this. I'm deeply indebted to um, John Tyson for this section here. Luke 10, verse 25 to 37. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it, he answered. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbors as yourselves. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. I wish the guy had just stopped here. You're good. You answered correctly. Jesus just gave you an attaboy. Do this and you will live. But... Nah, just stop talking. But he wanted to justify himself. So we asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. By the way, they're just doing what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to remain unclean. They don't know who this person is. They're bloody mess. They're just like, it's easier just to go by. How many times have we gone by someone who's just like, it's just easier to go by. I don't really have time. That's really not my thing. They're probably like going to like, I could give them something, but they're probably going to, you know, if I give them money, they're probably just going to go and do something bad with it anyway. You know that impulse, right? It's going to leave him. You know what C.S. Lewis, I've said this a million times. C.S. Lewis, he's talking with uh, G.K. Chesterton or J.R. Tolkien. They're walking along the side of the road. And they see a beggar. This is in London in like the 40s. And um, uh, Lewis goes ahead. This beggar comes to them. Lewis gives them a couple pounds. And uh, Cameron, I think it's Tolkien, turns to Lewis and just goes, why did you give that beggar money? He's just going to go spend it on smokes and booze. And Token and Lewis just looks at Token and goes, that's exactly what I was going to spend it on. I digress. But a Samaritan, the outcast, the one that there was liturgy, horrible liturgy in the temple about how, thank God I'm not like a Samaritan. 
A Samaritan traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, took pity on him. This is the word mercy, right? The word mercy. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for an extra expense that you may have. Any extra expense you may have. Which of these? So he turns to the guy who's like, I should not. I should have just ended the conversation. Why did I need to justify himself? And Jesus says, hey, hey, buddy, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law. Remember, Jesus is schooling an expert in the law, replied, the one who had mercy on him. Can't you hear him saying it just like that? Like, no, no, no. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. And so this man is beaten down. Now it's, a, right? Like, just go and do likewise. This man beaten down, stripped away. So you cannot tell which tribe he's a part of. And these first two, they do the religious thing they're supposed to do, and they talk themselves as functionally. They lean into their purity laws versus leaning into the weightier matters, the things that matter most. Then there's the story of Jesus eating with tax collectors and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And they say, why are you eating with tax collectors? And Jesus like, didn't I come for these folks, for the broken and for the hurting? Remember, the tax collectors weren't the, like, the, the, they weren't the, um, the, the, like, the cool hurting and oppressed, right? They were going to, like, the oppressors. These are the folks that are actually oppressing. This is the, the beauty of Jesus. He does not just go to the oppressed, but goes to the oppressor, realizing both need healing in different ways. And he has mercy on them. He tells them, don't put categories to keep those people out and those people in. Then there's the story of the woman who lived an unclean life. Jesus is eating a meal with a Pharisee, and this woman comes in with so much assurance in her heart that Jesus would have mercy on her. And he breaks open the perfume and pours it on her feet, and it's this whole scene where she's got perfume in her hair, and she's like cleaning Jesus. And we read a story like that, and we go, oh, that must have just been a normal cultural thing. Everything that I've ever read, every commentary about this passage, there is nothing normal about it at all. It's super weird. It's super weird to us when we read it now. Someone putting perfume in their hair and cleaning someone's feet with it. It was super weird then. Incredibly embarrassing, but she was desperate for mercy. Desperate for mercy. And the Pharisees are like, if you only knew who she was, you wouldn't let this woman who's done all of these horrible things and who is unclean even touch you. And Jesus is like, I know who she is. That's why I am letting her touch me. Jesus' vision was that his holiness could make people righteous. Not that their sin would contaminate him. So he just wanted to show mercy. Like it says in James 2, mercy triumphs over judgment. So Jesus says, go practice justice. Go practice mercy. These are the most important things. And then he moves on, lastly, to faithfulness. Really quickly. Faithfulness in the Bible is always has like a relational dynamic to it. It is not a set creed or a set of doctrines, though it includes that. It is primary, primarily about a relationship with God. And we talked about this in week one. We were talking about the upward path of this series. In a relationship, the person you're in a relationship gets to self-define. And too often in our relationship with God, we do not let God self-define. We have an image of what God must be like, and we place it upon him. And we edit the Bible every time we come to a place of something that makes us feel a bit uncomfortable. In any other relationship, you let that person say, this is what I like, this is what I desire, this is who I am, this is what I'm after. And so often with God, we talk about having a relationship with God, and that's sort of code for, I don't have to really read the Bible or know what he's about. When God's like, no, I've actually self-defined in the person of Jesus, this is what I'm about. So we talk about faithfulness. We're talking about being faithful to the covenant that we actually have with God. Jesus is saying you've got to practice justice and you've got to practice mercy, but you have to be faithful to the covenant. The reason this is important is because we live in a world where things are so tribalized that you'll get people that want to do justice and mercy without reference to the covenant faithfulness of God. And so what happens is you get a bunch of people who are acting like these truths are self-evident. And that's just, again, 
ahistorical. The truths aren't. They're not. They're not. And in fact, it's been a moving target of what is good justice and what is good mercy and what is not good justice and what is not good mercy. And we as followers of Jesus, I'm not putting this on anybody here who's not a follower of Jesus, but if you're a follower of Jesus, our invitation is to submit to the king who defines what it is to move in justice and mercy. We've used this phrase over and over from Mark Sayers. There are many who want the kingdom, want everything to be made right, but they do not want the king. And again, historically, we see how that sort of thing leads to disaster or just chaos. It is not a holistic worldview. Now, the reason, again, this is important is because you end up then getting into these conversations like, you know, God doesn't really care about, like, he doesn't really care about your sex life. He doesn't really care about what you do with your body. He doesn't really care about your marriage or your, like, personal holiness. He just, you know, he only, like, you know, he only cares what you do with, like, your wallet or caring for the poor. Said Jesus never. Right? We read the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus actually elevates the standards of personal holiness. He doesn't lower them. Jesus says, look at the Old Testament. You commit adultery by committing adultery in the Old Testament, right? By literally committing adultery. In the New Covenant, in the New Testament, he says, if you even look lustily upon a person, it's like you've done that. So Jesus is not like, oh, hey, man, that old, oppressive, crazy Old Testament, you can just do whatever you want now as long as you're nice and as long as you care for the poor. Like Jesus just doesn't teach that at all. It's not in there. And so we've got to realize that faithfulness to God is the element that defines the way the justice and mercy are lived out in our world today. James 1.27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is to look after orphans and widows in their distress, justice and mercy, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And just to clarify, if you read that verse and you're like, it's just like to hide or cloister away. No, no, no. The world the world, whenever it's referred to in the New Testament as the world, it's those systems and ways of being that are not aligned with our best and truest way of walking, the way of Jesus. The, the, the things that would pull us off course. So this is the tension of holiness and justice, righteousness and mercy. This is the great challenge we live in. This ultimately brings us to the point where what we need is kingdom discernment about how to hold all of these things together. It's very rare that you find a people, that you find individuals, or you find communities who hold these things together and practice them well, and we're going to be that kind of church. Amen? I mean, how disheartening is it? Let's just, like, name it. Somebody who is, like, un like killing it on a particular front on the justice conversation, who's engaged in the work of the poor, and then you find out they're having an affair. That just happened on a very large scale with a pastor two years ago. How disheartening is it when you meet somebody who is like highly engaged in justice and wants to be faithful to the things of God, but they don't actually have a prophetic biblical thing. They completely lack mercy. And so they're actually angry. Not righteous anger, not like that good kind of anger that disrupts and changes things. That kind of anger that is critical and tears down and doesn't know how to reconcile. Sort of like a Christian version of cancel culture. It's ugly. Or the other side, someone who's like trying to be faithful and leaning into mercy but leaving out the justice conversation. It's just like as long as you're just kind of generally kind to people and you have mercy whenever you see them and they actually are only helping people who are like falling over the cliff but not like, you know, the, the stream analogy of there are those that are standing at the, uh, the edge of where the stream tips over into the waterfall and they're grabbing people out, helping them, making sure they're okay. That's helpful. But no one's going upstream to find out why people are falling into the river. They actually don't want to get into the messiness of the work of justice that we're invited to be involved in, in some way. We need all three of these. We need to be a church, all three of these. And so, I, I want us to kind of sit in those three things and just sort out for a moment. When you read this, is there anything that makes you defensive? Is there anything that when you hear that, you're like, ah, you're already, already sort of making excuses for certain things that are kind of lacking from your life? 
1 John 2, 6 says, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. If I claim to be a follower of Jesus, claim to be connected to God, I need to live as he did. Where, when I read this, do I find a sense of conviction? If I don't have a faithfulness to God and to his leadership and the leading of the spirit, I'm going to be a burned out activist or engaged in a bunch of justice work that actually is leaning against the purposes of God. I don't want that. I don't want that. I, I want to hold on to all three of these. So, so I need to walk in all three of these, which brings me back to the phrase, I'm not doing that. Today, we are talking about the outward path. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been establishing a rule of life, a path of life, a way of life that we're going to walk together. That we as Sanctuary Church aren't just going to have a commitment to some theological things, and not just have sort of individual practices that we do, but have a shared way that we roll together. And we're mapping these practices, two practices per every direction. The upward, practice, upward direction. We want to be people dedicated to prayer and worship and dedicated to being in the word. The inward practice, last week we talked about, we want to be committed to a regular practices of silence and solitude and Sabbath. Oh, are you a part of sanctuary? Yeah, I actually am. Oh, what does it mean to be a part of sanctuary? Oh, one of those things is I Sabbath, I practice Sabbath. And we're creating these base entry-level things and stretch-level ways that you can engage. And our home churches are getting their hands on this. And as we come to the end of this series, into Easter and post-Easter, you'll have ways to actually then begin to write this stuff out and map this out. We're just sort of laying the groundwork now. So as we come to the outward direction, I want this question, of like, I, or this statement, I won't do that, to linger as we go, I want to do what Jesus did, which is the outward path for us, to do what he did. So what did he do? As he says, look, woe to you Pharisees. You're focused in on the wrong sorts of things, not on faithfulness, not on justice, not on mercy. These are the things that you're supposed to be focused in on. What is the sort of through line of mission underneath all of that? What is it to do what Jesus did, to do justice, to walk faithfully, to do mercy? And so I want to bring you to a scene. Because as apprentices and disciples of Jesus, we don't just follow his words, but we follow his actions and so turn with me as we close to John 13. I'm not doing that. It was just after Passover. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. So if you can get this in your mind, Jesus has been living um, all, like, uh, everything has been, like, leading up to this one point that he would actually give his life. This is the day before his crucifixion can imagine the emotions that he's feeling. And the text goes on to say, having loved his own who were in the world, what did he do? He loved them, it says, to the end. Verse 2, the evening meal was in progress and the devil was already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. So let's unpack this a little bit. This was his week leading up to this moment. On Monday, he cleansed the temple. He went in and turned over tables and he said, you will not turn my father's house into a place of profit. He's moving in the way of justice. This will be a house of worship. He goes in and sees the consumerism and the brokenness in the temple and says, this is not what this is for. And he takes a bat, a whip, technically, but I like to imagine him with a bat. On Tuesday, he has a massive fight with religious leaders. Wednesday, there's no record of what happened. So it's Thursday, and he's gathered in a secret room with his closest friends, ready to give his final speech to share with them the body and the blood and the bread and the wine in this historic, heartfelt moment. He knows that one of the disciples is going to betray him. The very next day, he's going to be beaten, betrayed, tortured, and hung on a cross to die. And according to Luke's gospel, a fight breaks out. He's having dinner with his disciples, and they're acting like children. And the conversation is, who is the greatest? Probably me. Right? There's this dispute. Who's the best? Peter's probably be like, I walked on water. Definitely the best. Right? They're like going through and fighting this out. Who is the greatest? And Jesus must look around and see their proud hearts and seize an opportunity, not just to break the argument up, but to show them what God is like and who they are called to be. And into this moment we read, So Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to do what? 
What do you do? Wash their feet. He began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Many of you know this story, and we'll dive into this more as we head towards Easter. But this was not the task of the Savior of the universe, never mind a rabbi, never mind a male in a household. This was the task of a servant, or really better put, a slave. People would come into the house, and they would have their feet washed because they had sandals and they're dusty and they're gross. And, and this, the Savior of the world, bends down and washes his followers' feet. I was trying to think of like a scenario that would be like, like I don't know, like the, <laughs> like the Queen of England or something, like showing up at your house to clean toilets. I'm like, I don't really care about the Queen of England. She can clean my toilets. No offense, Simon. <laughs> I couldn't think of a good scenario. Like this, this, according to the scriptures, this is the God of the universe, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the King of kings, the Redeemer, the light of the world, the Lord of lords, who stoops down and does something that is reserved for the lowest of low in society. Jesus is like, your feet are dirty. I can do that. I want to show you this is what I am like. The greatest is the one who will be a servant. Do you really want to be great? Lay down your life. Do you really want to be great? Find the opportunity to serve. Do you really want to be great? Live a life that is postured toward generosity. He's not giving a prescription, but it is interesting. The early church saw this, and there's actually a good argument to be made. We can have a fun theological discussion later at the bar. But there's a fascinating argument to be made that foot washing should be a sacrament. And for the first, like, three or four, like, hundred years of the church, it was. When you'd come, we always take communion, but you'd also do the holy kiss, and then you also wash feet. This was the institutions that Jesus had put into place. Keep doing this. Keep washing feet. The point being is that your posture and your way of life, in the same way we in the moment will go to the bread and the cup and we remember the sacrifice of what Jesus has done for us, we remember also the way in which he served and his invitation to us to serve. I'm not doing that is not the sentiment of a servant. I'm not doing that is not the way of the outward path. I'm not doing that. I'm too important for that. That's beneath me. Someone else will take care of that. Something I'm trying to train myself to do in my life lately has just been simply to go, if there is a need, where where can I meet it? Where can I meet it? Right away. Now, this isn't an invitation, like, to do everything. Limits and margin and following where the Spirit's actually leading are super important. But can we all agree that sometimes that becomes our default excuse to bow out of the very things that God's calling us to do? That's that spiritual discernment piece. God, give us eyes to see the needs that I would otherwise overlook. Give me ears to hear those who are hurting. Give me a heart like yours. God, if there's a need that I can meet, cause me to pause and to be interrupted and to move at your pace so that I can see the assignments that you have for me. And here's what I found most often when I believe it really is something I believe God wants me to do. It's those times when I most likely feel it's beneath me or it's too much of an inconvenience, or it's just too painful. And when you serve others, God changes lives. When you serve others, God changes lives. And the first life that he changes is yours. Jesus said it is better to give than to receive. So as the great prophet Dave Laborde says, If you even just want to be, live selfishly, if you actually were interested in being selfish, like just caring about your own needs, you should still be the most sacrificial, generous person alive because it's actually a better way to live. You'll you'll get it later. (laughs) This is, is a way that we want to live in better and more beautiful and more holy and powerful ways as a church as we look out into the next decade. 
to be a church that is marked by the outward path. Marked by people with the posture of foot washing. John Stott says this, some Christians take Jesus' command literally and sometimes have a foot washing ceremony in their Lord's Supper. And they may be right. But most also transpose his command culturally. That is just as Jesus performed what in his culture was the work of a slave, so we in our culture must regard no task too menial or degrading to undertake. We must follow our Savior into service. This is what he came to do, and we are called to apprentice under him. John 13 Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. So, if you're new to sanctuary or you've been here a long time, this is how we talk about the outward path. We believe that Jesus is God in human form. And that the church is God's ongoing presence in the world. Led by the Spirit of God, we are passionate about relieving suffering and fighting injustice, joining the God of the oppressed, and living out the transforming message of the resurrected Jesus. Jesus calls his church to be a compelling force for good in the world. And we believe that the church is at its best when it serves, when it sacrifices, when it loves, caring about the things God cares about. We were created to live for something larger than ourselves. <laughs> Isn't that great? No? That's good, right? Amen, maybe? Come on. This is why when we put up a, a QR code, like, hey, anybody want to go to, like, Poland in a couple weeks? Could you get off maybe a week of work, sacrifice, maybe a week of vacation? There's some people who could really need you. My, excuse, my assumption, not in any weird guilt pastor way, is like, yeah, of course. Yeah, of course, I'm in. That's literally what I'm here for. Like, this is laid out my life. And this is an opportunity that my family's invested in. Now, maybe you can't. Maybe that's not a possibility for you right now. Like, I understand those things. But, like, obviously I'm going to consider that. Obviously I'm going to take that deathly seriously. Obviously, like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, actually, I don't know. I had a buddy come up to me, um, buddy, come up to me and basically said, he was like really hurt. And he's like, Andrew, I, I have been struggling with purpose and calling for so long. Honestly, to walk across that border into Ukraine would be so important for my spiritual life right now. Like, I, I got it. I understood what he was saying. It's like I need to shake off the chains of apathy and despondency. I don't know what it is to live awake and alive. And I know that if I move towards the poor and I move towards the, poor, towards the hurting and I move towards the oppressed, I know because I've read my Bible that God's there. God's there. I know that that's better. And so our two practices as we go forward into these next, I keep saying decade. This feels like the right span of time. Here are our two practices. And we'll close here. One is Generosity. We want to add to our communal rule of life, generosity. Materialism, consumerism, and the constant need to accumulate more for ourselves are easy temptations to give into. However, the spiritual practice of generosity compels us to turn our attention toward our neighbor, especially the poor and the marginalized, to bring about the loving justice God desires for us. So a base practice, again, we'll get our hands on this more in the coming weeks is to inventory how you spend your time, inventory how you spend your money with earnest reflection on how you invest in yourself versus others, especially those that are hurting the poor and the marginalized. The stretch practice, let's just do an inventory and begin to assess. The second part of the rule of life, a stretch version, for those of you who've been walking with Jesus a while, who have good habits and want to put this into place, is to commit to proactively valuing generosity by setting up weekly, monthly, and yearly goals for how you will give generously. The question when you sit down with your spouse or your friends or just yourself and you look at the next year, post-taxes or whatever, the question isn't how much can I save for retirement. The first question is always how much can I give? Oh, I can't do that. I won't do that. Now we have to do that, right? That's the way of Jesus. Hospitality. Oh, the second part of that of stretch is that you might look to give generously to church, local organizations, missionaries, unhoused neighbors, that we would just plan that out well. And then our second practice together, two practices under the outward direction. The second one is hospitality. Generosity, base and stretch, hospitality, 
basin stretch. As followers of Jesus, we're called to live counterculturally to that of the world. We welcome the stranger in a spirit of kindness, kinship, and love. Hospitality is the spiritual practice of moving away from hostility and living into our calling as peacemakers for the kingdom of God. So our base practice, keep a prayer list of those you feel led to reach out to, those you feel led to pray for, those you want to, you, you, you feel like are supposed to help connect the dots to Jesus. Connect one-on-one monthly, casual setting, take a walk. Practice hospitality by meeting up with someone in a low-stakes situation. Just get in the rhythm of that, a good base practice. And the stretch practice is simply in addition to like a prayer list, invite someone into that rich tradition of fellowship around the table, sharing a meal and welcoming them into your home. Open your home and open your table, not just to your bestest of friends. So, let all of this for a moment just settle, like sediment in water. Just let it settle. How did Jesus live? How did he practice justice? How did he show mercy? How did Jesus show faithfulness to his father? And then ask yourself, in what way in my life, in my context, through my personality, through my gifts, is Jesus' kind of justice being manifest? If you're taking notes, just write that down. Through my personality, through my gifts, like where am I stepping into the flow of justice? Where am I being invited maybe to start something? Where am I showing? Am I showing Jesus' kind of mercy? Am I expressing faithfulness to Jesus? Is that showing up in me? And so let's simply sit with those questions as we close and take communion together. You should have received a cup and bread when you came out. If you didn't, you can just raise your hand. As we come to the communion table, I want to tie what we just talked about together. We celebrate the way that Jesus has served us by the way that he has washed our feet, giving us the spiritual provision we need day by day, above and beyond the service he gives us and offering his life for our salvation. Church, would you hear this? We cannot pray without his empowering us in prayer. We cannot grow in holiness without his forming holiness in us. And we cannot lead others to faith without the work of his spirit. We cannot serve others without the service he offers us first. We work from rest, from salvation, from love. We do not work for it. If this message is triggering any, I've got to do this to earn his love, it's nonsense and not the gospel. But we all of this stems from his service, his holiness, his love. Giving service to others, laying down your life is a hard lesson in our selfish world. But receiving service from others, in particular from Jesus here at the communion table, is the hardest lesson of all in our self-sufficient world. And this is what we're here to remember at communion. To remember the way that he served us the way he laid down his life for us, showing us his love and his goodness and his beauty, the forgiveness of sins. So, if you would, we about done with these communion packets? Yeah, yeah, we're about done with them. Let's be done with that. Jesus, on this same night where he washed feet, the night where he was betrayed, where things went sideways and there's a lot of messed up priorities. He embodies both washing of feet and this meal. And he holds up the bread. As they're breaking bread, sitting around, eating together at the table. He says, this bread is my body given for you, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Church, let us eat. Whoa, that is exactly the right response to taking the bread truly. After the supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it 
in remembrance of me. Church, let us drink. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, will we stand as we close? There's this refrain. It's so simple. It's like Sunday school simple. And I've found myself over the last couple of weeks playing it on repeat. It just goes like this. Jesus, Jesus, all I want is to be like you. All I want is to be like you. Jesus, all I want is to be like you. All I want, all I need, more of you and less of me. Take this heart. Lord, it's yours. And so, not as individuals in this moment, but as a family, Lord, we hold out our hands. Would you hold out your hand for a moment? If, if you're willing, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're in here, no pressure to do this. I mean, just, just in your heart, just say, God, I surrender. Are there any places where I have a spirit of, like, I'm not doing that. I won't do that. Any places where you feel God wants to just grow your passion for mercy and for justice, to see the way, God, that you have cared for us and poured out your mercy on us, the way that you will right every wrong. And to do that in faithfulness to you, not in our own accord, not just chasing whatever the hot version of, like, signaling towards justice is, but towards a biblical, deep, rich tradition of loving and laying down our life. I hold our hands open to you, Lord, and we just say we surrender. We surrender.